Welcome to Clabberty, hosted by me, Labby McCann. Rolling, 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 ride. That's not very good, Larry. I don't think we want to start the episode this way. You're such a good singer. Why don't you step up to the mic? Rolling, 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 ride. That wasn't terrible, Will. But I don't think either of us are winning a Grammy anytime soon. That I can agree with. Do we have an exciting show for you? If you liked the interview last week, we got some more of that. If you like the long, tedious news stories I've been covering, have we got the episode for you. We're going to go right into the interview with Mariana. This is the second part. It's a little shorter. wonderful and amazing that you recognize that this marriage was not creating happiness for you. What advice would you give other women who find themselves in that position and maybe they didn't have a child that created this perfect situation for them to recognize, I don't need this anymore. This isn't helping me as a person. Can you think of any other ways that they could snap out of that tolerance, accepting unhappiness? For me, the problem was I was able to see them all as little things that were insignificant in that moment. But when put together in one package, it was a massive thing. And I did myself the disservice to qualify them as little things. And I don't think that men do that. I think for men, it's things that happen, then they address them immediately. Whereas women gather them, hide them, push them away until they cannot any longer. And so my advice would be stop fooling yourself to think that these are little things. These are things that require your attention immediately. And you matter. Your, yeah. your experience matters just as much as the man's. Yeah. Women seem to have the tendency to, even if they're correct, submit to the wrong viewpoint from a man. Have you ever experienced a single man doing that towards a woman? <laughs> well, when my husband knew the wrath was coming. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> when you ask me these questions, I think about them in the workplace. And, and no, I don't. I think that's a truly stunning comment where whether it's a relationship or a professional situation, men seem incapable of doing what women are essentially expected to do. And I think that underscores how much our society is not equal and we're held to very, very different standards. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, look who it is. Will finally showed up with these headphones. Just come barging into this interview. I hope it was worth it. We had some technical difficulties without you. I hope you're proud. I already paused. Anyways. <laughs> I don't even want those headphones anymore. What's the problem? You're just going to sit there and we're going to have a long talk later. I got them. Don't let him talk to you like that, Will. Don't take his side. (laughs) You don't know what I put up with. As a Hispanic woman, do you feel represented by the feminist movement? So that's a tough one for me because 
I already struggle with just being a Hispanic woman, and I think Hispanic women would struggle with me being a Hispanic woman. My background is I was born in Mexico and lived there till I was about three or four years old. Then we moved to San Diego. My dad is Mexican. My mom is Lebanese and Scottish, Irish, and English. So I don't truly fit the mold for any one nationality. And so in high school and in college, I just didn't identify with programs like Mecha that swung in one way or another nationality-wise. Even as an alum, I don't really associate myself with the Latino Alumni Association. I feel like my experience was so much broader than that. For example, at the Women's March, one of the speakers was a Latina transgender woman who was speaking from a place of just pure rage, just rage. I didn't feel like I identified with her in the amount of her anger and in her suppression of Latina women because I've never felt suppressed because I was Latina. If I've felt suppressed, it was because I was a woman, no different than a blonde woman next to me. I also, I apologize for identifying you as a Hispanic woman. That was unfair of me. I, I don't mean that as a, this is a category you only fit into this box. I honestly didn't know that you had the Lebanese, Scottish, and Irish, I believe, uh -huh, mm -hmm. ancestry. So I, I apologize if, if you felt like I narrowed down who you are into no. a very specific category. No, no, no. It's kind of been not a struggle. It's just been um, when I'm in Mexico, I'm clearly not a Mexican. But I'm in the United States, I'm clearly not a blonde. So it's just all areas of my life. Life is complicated. Yeah. Right. I, I agree. <laughs> To, to return to the, the speaker at the march, what about the rage doesn't connect you? I think she felt like that was her role. We're here to just be pissed off, and I'm going to find whatever those taglines are to be pissed off. At one point, she was just berating the LAPD, who was there to protect us. There were officers in our midst there to protect us, and I thought, this is not the time nor the place for that anger. And your level of anger... It made me shut off completely, not hear her at all. So the opportunity to connect with us both being Latina never stood a chance. I think that's a powerful statement. And I think there is a tendency, whether it's politics, gender inequality, or any social issue, some people get extremely angry. And that may be an effective form of communication to reach some people, but it also alienates others. If you're the leader of a movement, you can't connect yourself to only the outliers or you're going to miss out on the masses in the middle. And that was what this person was doing. I think that accurately represents a political landscape where you have extremists on pretty much either side and they're deciding everything. They're not really representing the average person anymore. Right. Right. Uh, to pivot a little bit, you've had a lot of success in your career and hold a leadership position. Are there any challenges that you face that men in your position would not? That's the dog. She's pretty pissed about this question. <laughs> Are there challenges in my... Yes, yes, absolutely. And just recently, I had to experience that and pull some muscle and uncomfortableness because I had to claw for the level of equality the man was getting that I wasn't getting. So I talked to my husband about it and he said, I guarantee you, you are the only one still thinking about it. 
you are the only one still replaying it in your mind because they left work and that conversation is over for them. You will be back tomorrow and it won't be a blip on their radar. I was hopeful that that was true. I was hopeful that I could leverage that piece of men's response for a positive outcome for me. And yes, happy story. It's been a better experience. But again, it's knowledge that unfortunately I now have. And fortunately, I also have to call on, to know, to remember. The inequity is just, it's prolific. That's truly staggering. And I think unfortunately, that's closer to the reality than not. I think behind closed doors, women in all sorts of positions are experiencing things that men do not. And there's a two-faced aspect to it as well. I think a lot of people, not even just women, they would have avoided the conflict. And I think it's a responsibility of all of us, not only for our own experiences, but if you see that happening to someone else, we have a power to speak up and say, you're being disrespectful. You're not being professional right now. Right. Yeah, ten, 10 years ago, version of me would never have done that. Would never have done that. Something my husband says all the time is, we all deserve to be happy. And it sounds so simple. It's such a simple statement. But yeah, we do. And anything that gets in the way of that needs to get pushed aside. So if this is my reality and this is my future in this role, then I deserve to be happy. I don't know. It seems simple, but it's a nice, easy phrase to fall back on in moments of questioning. Absolutely. It mirrors what you were talking about with your former marriage, Mm -hmm. where you realize this. I deserve to be happy. Whether or not you said that phrase to yourself, you made that decision and that allowed you to break out of a bad situation. Yeah. Yeah. And he did too. I told him that. I said, you do too. (laughs) We deserve to be happy. That's a wonderful mantra. <laughs> my simple, my simple, simple husband. Hey, simple does not mean wrong. <laughs> Feel free to belittle him. You're welcome to belittle any man on this podcast, including myself. I'm here to listen. In situations like this, but maybe perhaps even worse, well, I, I don't want to diminish it either, but in terms of something like harassment or sexual misconduct. I had a boss who encouraged me to take off my coat when I was meeting with a donor that he knew because he said he's a boobs guy. And I didn't say anything about that. For 10 years, I didn't say anything about that. As a simple man, can you parse your feelings from that horrible comment? God, it's so weird. It's like the anger comes later. Well, the immediate reaction was kind of just shock someone who I've respected and held in high regard was looking at me in a way I was not prepared to hear. I thought we could be asexual to one another. And then to find out, no, and in fact, you've been noticing my body in a way that I didn't realize. And then you were encouraging me to use it in a way that I not only never have, and then now you're my boss and you're asking me to do that. It's a feeling of shame. It's shame. So first it was self-shame. Then it was disgust and loss of respect for my boss. And I value my boss. And I want my boss to be someone who I can learn from, who I can share with, who I can team up with. And immediately that was lost for me. That was a major loss for me personally. And then it was just embarrassment for him. And then it was sadness that this had happened 
I had shared it. And in my perspective, there were no consequences. Do you think he even thought he did anything inappropriate or wrong, either in the moment or 10 years later? I think his only concern was that I might think that he had feelings for me. That was his only concern. Just recently, during the explosion of the Me Too movement, I thought, I'm thinking about this. I wonder if he's thinking about this. And I wonder if he's realizing he's one of those people. Or if he's saying to the women in his life, yes, I support you, yes, you know, preach on. Or is he, in his quiet moments, thinking, I'm one of those douchebags? I don't think so. I hope he is, but I, I got to agree with you there. And I got to agree with your husband as well when he was talking about that other unfortunate meeting you had. Yeah. Where I think a lot of these guys or just people in leadership positions, they're almost sociopaths. They don't care about these things. They sleep extremely well at night. That personal reflection is just not a part of the process. Right. You, you do a fair amount of traveling through your work. Are there any significant differences in how men and women are treated in any of the places or countries that you've been to? Yes. So I travel a lot within the United States, but recently I've been traveling for work to Indonesia, last year to Dubai. And <laughs> I was traveling with the president of the university and we were in the Dubai airport on the way home. I said, I have to be sure and get a souvenir for my daughter because what are the chances that I'll be back here? And he said, no, of course you'll be back here. There's so much wealth and I really think there's opportunities for us to engage parents and alumni in this area for philanthropic support. And I looked at him and I said, yes, perhaps you're right, but I wouldn't be the one asking. These women are covered from head to toe with eyes barely showing. I don't think that my conversation with a man in Dubai is going to be positively received when I show up with hair down, makeup on, ankles showing. It took that conversation for the president to realize, right, yeah, yes, you're right. And then in my work in Indonesia, I have never and will never be in a meeting without husband and wife. Maybe just wife, but never just me and the husband. That sounds a lot like Mike Pence. Right. Right. <laughs> yep. How does that make you feel? Are you able to perform your job as capably as you can when that's not the situation? It makes me feel like there's a ceiling that I'll never be able to get beyond in those countries. But I'm reinforced that the senior leadership at my institution doesn't feel that way, that they have chosen me, that they are sending me, that I am the one that's had results. But I do know that there will be a time when I've likely gotten a donor to a, a fantastic place and it's going to have to be a man that comes in and closes that. Bummer, but I can only affect so much change. That is unfortunate. <laughs> I think that in a lot of ways that might be the case here too. Yeah. It might be a little less obvious where you don't have the head-to-toe coverage. Right or the mandatory husband and wife. Right. But I do think there are elements of that in our country as well. Have you experienced anything like that? Yes. So when I work with donors about possible gifts, more often than not, the husband is the decision maker in that gift. Sadly, sometimes the women don't even know how much wealth they have or what they have access to. Yes, it sometimes feels like I get them warmed up for someone else to come and close th that gift because it's still such a man's world. A lot of the wealth still is held by, you know, the 1% or 2% that all look the same, too. So 
I'm a woman, I'm in the younger side of the development world, and I've got color in my skin. And part of that might be why I am where I am. You know, people have to check the boxes and meet the minimum requirement. And maybe I was able to ride a wave that thankfully I have the skill set behind me to support that. But maybe I was able to ride some of that wave to my own benefit. How would you encourage other women who maybe don't have the same background as you, but also can check those boxes? How can they take advantage of those qualities without exploiting themselves? Sure. I think that's the only time I've ever said that out loud. It's a thought I've had, but it's the only time I've said it out loud. Well, thank you for sharing (laughs) in this interview. And I can be okay with it because I know my value. I know my successes. My most trusted and most valued colleague fits the same boxes that I do. And I would never share those thoughts with her. I would never even put that in her mind because I know how successful she is. I know how committed she is currently, and I also know what she could be. And so I would want her to figure that out on her own and have the oomph behind her based on her successes and not the boxes. I think that's a very healthy attitude. I mean, it's easy for me from a position of privilege to be like, oh, we should all be equal and treat each other the same. And I think understanding the reality of how that's not true is important. I don't think it's productive to solely focus on those qualities. Right. Do you think that these things can change in the near future? Do you see any progress or do you think this is how it's going to be for a long time? I was so pissed when my aunt on my mom's side said to me how great that I was able to get into these colleges because of affirmative action. And I was so offended, so completely offended because that for me was not why I had gotten in. I see the benefit in policy like that, but it's still, it's less than, it's still less than. If I was going to the polls to vote, I would have said, yeah, that's a great thing. But when someone attributed it to me, it disappointed me, it made me sad. To answer your question, I think that corporations and universities specifically are doing what they need to do, right? We're having implicit bias workshops and we're having harassment workshops and we're having all of these things to inform But then are we just fulfilling needs or are we truly giving all candidates, are we holding them all to the same standard or are we giving folks advantages one way or another because of one thing or another and not holding folks to the same standard? So I think that corporations and organizations are doing the things that they have to do, but then when it's really put into place, is it ultimately benefiting anyone? A very tough question. And I'm a cynical guy. And I I think that a lot of the time, it's kind of like you're saying, they're doing these things more or less because they have to, not because they care anything about creating a better situation, creating change, Mm -hmm. or anything like that. And I'll take it, but is it actually addressing the root cause? Mm -hmm. I've taken up so much of your time. (laughs) I, I really appreciate you sitting down and you've been wonderful in this interview. If there's anything you'd like to say right now, I want to give you the opportunity to unprompted uh, (laughs) spill whatever, whatever you're thinking. This was an easier conversation than I thought it was going to be. You made me think about things and call on things that I haven't in years, 10, 20 years. And I thank you for that. And it's interesting to now weave them into my story. And I mean, I can say, yes, I am who I am because of my past, but until I'm 
encouraged to or forced to (laughs) really think about those things. I didn't really have a clear picture of what my tapestry was. So thank you. Uh, You're so generous. Uh, It was there all along. Uh, (laughs) Do not give me any credit. But I, I do appreciate the message where I've experienced a lot of reluctance. A lot of the women I try to set up interviews with feel a lot of pressure, not only to represent themselves well, but to represent women. Yes, yes. So it's fantastic for me to hear that this wasn't a difficult process and that you were able to naturally express your feelings because that's all I'm after. Right. I am who I am. And if you want to leave that cut out, that's fine. But yeah, it was much more comfortable than I, than I had thought it would be. That's, again, fantastic to hear. (laughs) Thank you so much, and I appreciate every single second you spent on this. You're welcome, Larry. Have a wonderful day. You too. Next up is part three of my coverage concerning sexual assaults on college campuses. On NPR.org, written by Anya Kamenetz, she writes, Way back in 1957, sociologist Eugene Kanan posited a model where men use secrecy and stigma to pressure and exploit women. Mary Koss coined the term date rape back in the 1980s. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Arizona, and over the course of her career, she has collected the stories of thousands on campuses and around the world. Anya writes, Among the most disturbing of these OMG findings were these two from the only national survey of college men on the topic, published in 1987. 7.7% of male students volunteered anonymously that they had engaged in or attempted forced sex. Almost none of those considered it to be a crime. They would say, yes, I held a woman down to have sex with her against her consent, but that was definitely not rape. Part of the reason that few of her respondents considered themselves sexual offenders, she said, is that they faced no negative consequences, no accusation, No shame, no punishment. Compared to when she started doing this research in the 1980s, she says even more men in current studies, around 11%, admit to being perpetrators. And I think it's worth taking the time to pause this. Just because you're not caught and charged with a crime or even accused of it does not mean you didn't do something wrong. Consequences aren't the only means of identifying improper behavior. Like Alex Marshall Brown said in one of the earlier episodes, we should all be self-evaluating all the time, questioning ourselves, thinking back to past events, and trying to understand it from a perspective that's different than ours. Maybe you saw it this way, but maybe the other person didn't. Reaching out to someone like that can be very healing. The Me Too movement for me was inspiring in the sense that it caused a lot of self-reflection. Were there many moments in my life where I might have done something that could have resulted in someone identifying it as their Me Too moment? I certainly hope not, but I think it's also possible. Like Tarana Burke said, trauma is a very personal thing. 
And we also tend to see everything primarily from our perspective. So what I would recommend, if you have any doubt, maybe reach out to those individuals. If you think you might have done wrong by someone, it's never too late to try to have a conversation about it. From an article written by Robbie Suave, S-O-A-V-E, Suave, I, I think that's the correct pronunciation. I apologize yet again if I'm incorrect on that. Some perpetrators should be dealt with via the criminal justice system, Koss said, but others might be best served by something Koss calls restorative justice. Such a process can take many forms, but involves dialogue between the students involved in a rape dispute. The goal is not necessarily to punish a rapist, but to allow both parties to achieve closure on the incident and grow from it. Koss believes that universities, which possess significant resources to assist students who are dealing with trauma, but are often unequal to the task of fairly adjudicating sex crimes, are an ideal vehicle for restorative justice in cases where victims are looking for validation and assistance instead of punitive justice. He then quotes Koss as saying, In my work with the restorative processes, there were a couple of preconditions. One precondition is that due process is observed. A second precondition is that victims' rights are observed. A third thing is that participation is voluntary by both groups. So I think that's important to point out. What Mary Koss is proposing isn't a mandatory step for any case. This is something that both the accused and the victim have to agree to. It has to run, again, in conjunction with ideally our legal system, but the adjudication process of colleges, which we've already discussed, has been problematic. And often in the university's own self-interest is another form of due process that was mandated by the Obama administration's interpretation of Title IX. Robbie writes that Koss's preconditions might not set due process advocates at ease entirely, given how poorly university administrators have handled sexual assault in the past. But voluntary, university-sponsored mediation would still be a vast improvement over the current regime, which requires that universities play judge, prosecutor, and jury at mandatory, farcical, extrajudicial proceedings. Now, I don't want to jump to conclusions, but that sounds like a kangaroo court. Boo! Yeah, yeah, tough crowd. Let's hop right back into the story. Boo! He continues, There was a big obstacle standing in the way of this approach, however. The federal government. In the last few years, the Education Department's Office for Civil Rights has consistently told universities that federal law, Title IX of the Higher Education Act, requires them to adjudicate rape disputes. Costa's solution would also no doubt be opposed by many victims' advocates, the Emma Sukowitz type. She's mentioned later in the New Yorker piece. Uh, anyways, victim rights advocates generally prefer expulsion or a zero-tolerance policy. In another article found on the Christian Science Monitor, which is not a source I would normally look at for anything relating to feminism, but that might be my own bias. The author, Stacy Titcher Kataru, writes about an incident that occurred to Jasmine Elise's story. When Jasmine was 18, she was living in London 
to attend a first-year college abroad program. A friend of a friend date-raped her. She went to the police the next day to get a rape kit. After years, she says, that came to nothing. There was no criminal case. She says that a female prosecutor told her they had decided not to go forward because they didn't want her to be subjected to a he-said-she-said trial, with the defense dragging her through the mud. Jasmine says that she reported the crime out of a sense of duty, hoping to prevent future assaults. She's quoted as saying, I was hurt that she didn't see that I was doing it for something bigger than myself. And I really appreciate that mentality. I wholeheartedly agree that any trial is going to be an ordeal, especially one as personal as a sexual assault case or a rape case. And I truly commend Jasmine for being willing to put herself through that, not only for herself, but to help others in the future. Later on in college, Jasmine started learning about restorative justice, and that greatly inspired her. She saw restorative justice as a process that truly meets the need to be heard, the need for accountability, the need for some type of attempt at repair. Not just for us, but for our family members, for our partners, because it does ripple out. And as we discussed in the last episode, Betsy DeVos, the current head of the Department of Education, has actually opened up the doors for programs like restorative justice, due to the fact that she lifted much of the Title IX guidance on sexual misconduct. The author writes, The issue is still complicated for sexual assault survivors. Advocacy groups such as End Rape on Campus and Know Year 9, if you're Greek and saying, what's this IX? Those are Roman numerals. These advocacy groups argue that opening the door to options other than a formal investigation and disciplinary hearings is one of the numerous shifts that could signal to campuses that they are free to take sexual violence less seriously. At the heart of the debate are several questions. Is an adversarial campus discipline process the only way to symbolize that sexual violence won't be tolerated? Or has higher education made enough progress toward taking it seriously that it can now consider new forms of justice? Can different approaches operate side by side and start to get more at the roots of the problem? The article then quotes a practitioner of restorative justice, David Karp, a sociology professor at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, New York, and the head of campus PRISM Project, a collaboration of researchers and practitioners interested in restorative justice for sexual misconduct. Colleges had problems trying to mediate sexual assault because Mediation is a process where there's no assignment of guilt. Karp continues by saying that participants often say, I would rather have gone to jail than sit face to face with a person I've harmed and truly acknowledge what I've done. I would rather hide from that truth. And I think that last quote is very telling. We focus a lot on punishment in this country, but is locking someone in jail and throwing away the key truly the worst punishment? Or say even the death penalty? Professor Koss says, These kinds of serious, repetitive rapists need to be dealt with harshly and definitively. What I'm trying to raise people's awareness of is, all men who rape during college are not alike. She continues, In fact, most of them are not serial predators. They are young men, uneducated about mature relationships, responsible drinking, and laws relating to consent. They can be taught better behavior, and that, in some sense, should be the university's mission. These are educational institutions, so at our foundation, we have some faith that people can change over time. 
Cost continues, some perpetrators should be dealt with via the criminal justice system, but others might be best served by restorative justice. Such a process can take many forms, but involves dialogue between the students involved in a rape dispute. The goal is not necessarily to punish a rapist, but to allow both parties to achieve closure on the incident and grow from it. One of the programs that inspired Mary Koss was called Restore. It operated in Pima County, Arizona. Prosecutors screened cases, both misdemeanors and felonies, and allowed some victims and, quote, responsible persons, this is their term for perpetrators, to opt in. Again, this was not mandatory. Both parties had to agree to it. Restore took place between 2003 and 2007 and was studied closely by Mary Koss. She's also a participant in Campus Prism, along with David Karp. Out of 22 cases in which both parties volunteered, 20 made it to the conferencing stage after extensive preparation. Other people impacted by the crime were able to share their experiences as well. And the plans for how the responsible person would redress the harm were supervised for one year. Professor Koss found that 80% of responsible parties completed the program and only one reoffended during the follow-up year. It was an older individual showing signs of dementia. Victims felt safe and highly satisfied, although not all of them thought that justice had been served. This is a admittedly small sample size. So 80% of 20 is 15. No, it's not. 80% of 20 is 16, Larry. Oh, look at Mr. Big Shot Tax Accountant here. I guess you chose the wrong profession, Mr. Einstein. He was a physicist. So I'm sure he'd recognize the gravity of the situation. That was Newton. You know what? Never mind. Keep going. I'm glad I have your permission. I think that data is encouraging and explains why Mary Koss is heavily invested in this concept. One counterposition comes from Michael Dolce, a survivor of childhood sexual assault and a Florida-based lawyer who heads up the sexual assault practice group for the law firm Cohen Milstein. In respect to restorative justice, he says it would be dangerous to the survivor as well as to the college community at large and it certainly sends the wrong message to the perpetrator. He continues by saying sex offenders are often skilled at manipulating the victims and others into believing that they are remorseful. But the dehumanizing nature of their crime and the high rates at which they reoffend should prompt deep skepticism. Instead, there has to be a zero-tolerance message. The final article I'd like to expand upon is from The New Yorker, written by Gia Tolentino, and it primarily covers a program run by two women at Columbia University, Jennifer Hirsch and Claude Ann Mellons. Hirsch is an anthropologist, and Mellons is a clinical psychologist. They're both professors at Columbia, both in their 50s and grew up in Jewish families in Manhattan. The author of this piece writes, The problem of campus sexual assault can seem unfathomable and intractable. We generally think of it as a matter of individual misbehavior, which various studies have shown most prevention programs do little to change. But Hirsch and Mellons think about sexual assault socioecologically as a matter of how people act within a particular environment. And I think this mirrors what we just explored through the Brenda Tracy article. The institution of college sports seems to exasperate this problem. And that's clearly a social thing. 
And in the specific case of Brenda Tracy's gang rape, the individuals fed off of each other and were encouraged by the participation of others. According to the article, five years ago, Hirsch had become frustrated by the focus in those debates on adjudication and punishment, rather than the ways in which the environment of college makes students vulnerable. As a response, Hirsch met with Mellons, and they began to brainstorm ideas, what's a different way we can approach this? Hirsch had a background of dealing with very unfortunate situations, like infants or children still in the womb being infected with HIV. And she saw a link where this is a very uncomfortable conversation, but it needs to happen. And there needs to be some kind of organization to allow that to happen. So together, Hirsch and Mellons created SHIFT. And in 2015, Hirsch and Mellons began soliciting applications for a paid undergraduate advisory board, selecting a dozen or so students, including members of the Greek system, student government leaders, a ballerina, anti-sexual assault activists, a sex educator, a Barnard student, and an RA. For the next two years, the group met at 8 a.m. every Monday, and they allowed these students to provide feedback and bounce ideas, discussing what might actually reach students. This is a statement from Hirsch on how to draw people to these meetings. She said, snacks, we learned, were a really big thing. If you're facing reluctant participation, perhaps providing something to eat would be a refreshing change. These meetings revealed a lot. The article says that talking about sex brings a lot to the surface. Students discussed loss, family, trauma, hardship, fear, while some of the men they spoke to cracked offhand jokes about having been raped. As a result, they decided that they needed to do a mental health check-in at their weekly meetings. They would go around the room and everyone would relate how he or she was coping with the work. In one meeting, Mellons brought up affirmative consent, the practice of actively, mutually soliciting enthusiasm throughout a sexual encounter, which is now the legal standard for universities in New York and California. Mellons told the administrators that affirmative consent rarely factored into the experiences that students were describing. Mellons then continues by saying, and our point was, there's a really broad disjuncture between what students learn and what they actually practice. In October of that year, Hirsch and Mellons launched the second phase of their study. 412 students were asked to fill out a short online questionnaire every day for 60 days. The idea was that researchers would be able to quickly scan each 24-hour period for mood, sleep, sexual activity, substance use, and unusual experiences. If you participated, you'd get snacks, including fruit, candy, pizza, and chips. One part of the survey asks about consent. If students expect their partners to ask, if they think it's a matter of body language, if they think that asking once at the beginning of a hookup is fine. This phase of Schiff's research concluded in the fall of 2017. Since then, they've been analyzing this data and preparing to publish papers using all this new information. Hirsch, along with a co-author, Khan, published a book about this program, Shift, called The Sexual Project and provided the following quote. The record-setting response rate for the shift survey makes its data unusually comprehensive and reliable. In certain important respects, its numbers are in keeping with previous findings. A little more than one in five respondents said that they had experienced sexual assault since starting college. 28% of women, 12% of men, and nearly 40% of gender non-conforming students. 
The survey did not use the term sexual assault. It asked about unwanted sexual contact, which might be a way of getting more people to admit that they have been sexually assaulted. Schiff found that students who are struggling to pay for basic necessities are especially vulnerable, much like non-gender conforming individuals. Men in fraternities are in fact more likely than other male students to be perpetrators. Schiff found that they were more likely than other men to be victims as well. So this is a double-edged sword. There's something about that culture which might be mirrored by the dynamics of a college sports team as well. Hirsch then says, Part of what I see our work doing is disrupting these scripts that women give consent and men secure it. That men are sexual agents and women are gatekeepers, which is affirmed by consent education that frames men exclusively as potential perpetrators. This clearly reflects what the Department of Justice was thinking. Until they revised their definition in 2012, only a man could be considered a perpetrator in rape, which is a very narrow perspective. The article then continues by stating, The National Panhellenic Conference, which adheres to rather antiquated gender norms, forbids sororities from holding parties where alcohol is served which means that at many schools, the most accessible parties for freshmen take place on fraternity terms and on fraternity turf. And this might help explain why the attacks are so much more likely to occur at a fraternity party, be perpetrated by a member of the fraternity, and also put fraternity members at risk because all the alcohol is being concentrated in this one specific location. Next, the author says, in the meantime, Hirsch and Mellons are talking to administrators about the interrelationship of mental health, substance abuse, and sexual assault, and about how different types of incidents and different types of students require different types of prevention and response. And I think this nuance is utterly important. We're not going to have one blanket approach that applies to all universities. And in last episode, I detail how the frequency of sexual assaults and rapes is not identical across institutions. It never seems to be great, but some institutions seem to have a much greater problem than others. The student body composition, the location, the college culture are all going to feed into what makes the situation so dangerous. One former student, Emma Sokowitz, believes that punishment should be the driving factor. She accused a man of rape and made this statement. That makes me think of asking someone to wash the dishes and they tell you, I'll try. I think that's the difference between spending $2 million to try to understand the conditions that create a community that's conducive to sexual assault versus just doing the right thing, expelling people who sexually assault other students. I agree with that sentiment, but I also think it's a bit of a narrow perspective. If this is more likely to occur on a college campus, perhaps the college is also complicit in creating an environment that fosters sexual assault. The article then also gets an account from Morgan Hughes, a 23-year-old hip-hop musician. She identified herself as a disengaged student, focusing mostly on her music. Most of her friends were people of color, and she found it difficult to secure space and permission from Columbia to hold their own events, stating, Everything is so regulated, so limited, everything's super uptight. Columbia always says they're listening taking students into account, and then they turn around and make a decision that doesn't acknowledge any of that conversation. But Schiff did listen. They changed their agenda based on what we talked about. It didn't feel like we were just wasting our breath. Okay, so along with snacks, feeling like you're actually valuing the input that the students or the participants are giving you is utterly important. She then concludes the statement by saying, 
I mean, Colombia, you should want to solve the problem so you don't keep having to solve the problem. You know what I mean? And I think what's so important about the study is it both created an environment that fostered communication, participation, and really sought to hear from the students what they were experiencing and trying to understand possible links that may not be obvious. The alienation of going away for school, excessive alcohol, trying to fit in, are all elements that are important for this conversation. And again, we need a multifaceted approach. We need to prepare the students for this new environment. We need to identify what behavior is dangerous and might lead to sexual assault. And we also need to make sure that the university itself is an environment that is nurturing and caring of its student body. I think an approach using all these environmental-related programs, coupled with things like restorative justice, bystander intervention, raising awareness on how to identify a situation that's escalating, and if we combine all those things together, I think we can quickly turn this around. What I want to get into next episode is the work of Dr. Lissick. Unfortunately, in my opinion, he's heavily influenced the discussion and policy on campus sexual assaults which would be a good thing if he bothered to do the correct research and didn't misconstrue his evidence. But right now, let's have a word from our sponsor. Are you tired of people rubbing your bald head for good luck? Does searching for the perfect toupee make you exhausted? Does the idea of putting the hairs from your butt on your head disgust you? Then have I got the product for you. It's called a hat. They're now socially acceptable pretty much anywhere. You don't even have to doff them to a lady anymore. Now that's what I call gender equality progress. (laughs) 